What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Dish Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Dish Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Here we go. We got another Perspectives episode. Uh, I'm excited about this one because everybody was hitting my line. Talking about you got to get Khadijah Bab on. Now you got to get Khadijah Bab. So she's here now. Uh, welcome to the platform. How you doing? I'm doing good. I, I sure hope I live up to the expectation that everybody hey, has. Me. But it a, must be a reason. But yeah, I'm doing good today. I think, I think people see, you know, that you're powerful and that, you know, you're, you're, you're running. You're a judicial candidate for a criminal court judge, Division 5. Uh, and apparently people are seeing some need uh, for that seat to be filled by you. <laughs> And so we got to talk about it, okay. right? Uh, so we're going to dive straight into it. Who is Khadijah, right? Like, if somebody haven't heard about you, know who you are, um, what would you tell them? Okay. So Khadijah, I'm a Nashville native. Um, I grew up right here in East Nashville. I went to... Um, I always go back to my middle school because it matters to me because I went to UN Park and we were the best at everything. So I, I was zoned for UN Park, okay. but I didn't go. Well, where did you go? I went to end up going ahead. Oh, okay. so I went from okay. Kings Lane to Bardo or Bordeaux, however okay. people want to say it, and then and then I went to Head in Pearl. Okay, okay. So yeah, I went to UN Park for middle school, and then I went on to I was zoned for Maplewood, but I went to um, Nashville School of the Arts because I was actually recruited to run track for Pearl. Okay, so I ended up running track for Pearl Cone. Um, at, at NSA, I majored in theater, and then I went on to uh, UT for undergrad and then for law school. Um, I think as far as back I, as I can remember, I have always wanted to be a, an attorney. The only other thing that I ever wanted to be was a ballerina, and that was <laughs> I, that was when I was in kindergarten. And then after ever since then, I have always ever wanted to be an attorney. Why, why an attorney? Like I'm pretty sure you could have done many other things, and. Being a black woman, you know how we are on people that get into the criminal legal system, law enforcement. Like, ah, yeah. So why, 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 why? Well, like, what was the inspiration or what happened? What, what? Well, for one, my mom used to watch Matlock all the time. <laughs> but also, I just, I, you always hear about, I was trying to find my way. Like, what can I do for the community that's going to make an mm. impact? So I always wanted to be a criminal defense attorney so that I could represent people and give them quality representation, even if they are indigent. Because you right. always hear, you know, people that are indigent, people don't have the money to hire, you know, the best lawyers. I wanted to be that lawyer for people who didn't have that money. Mm. So that is why I became a lawyer in the first place, is to practice criminal defense so I could rep give quality representation to people who couldn't otherwise really afford, I guess, a high-powered lawyer, if that's what you want to say, or, right. you know, a really expensive lawyer. That was my whole purpose for becoming a criminal defense attorney okay well you just hit on a hot topic right there okay. we can get straight into it <laughs> money right in the criminal legal system whether it's uh indigent defense or whether it's just you know trying to get um somebody to represent you from the public defender's office um many people talk about money bail cash bail right um what is your take on money bail cash bail or how the lack of resources uh, impact black folks and poor folks uh, majority in our criminal legal system. So as far as cash bill and money bill, 
bail should not be used as a punishment, right? right? Bail is there in order to ensure somebody returns back to court. So putting a high amount, if let's say, for instance, we have a millionaire, right, versus right. somebody who can't afford a bill, and we're deciding, and they have the same charge, and let's just say so they just so happen to have the same amount of bail. Now we're basically punishing somebody for being indigent or being poor. Mm -hmm. So we need to set bail amounts that are relevant to, of course, what the uh, accusation of what the person did, but also we need to look at other things like their income, like their family structure. Right. And these are all factors that are, are in our statute that we're supposed to look at, you know, even when I become a judge, that we need to look at when we're deciding on what bail is going to look like. We cannot use bail to punish people, right. you know, because at the end of the day, if you are, are we saying if you're rich, and right. you have money and you commit a homicide, you can get out. But if you're poor, you can't. That's essentially what is in, what takes place when we solely choose money as a way to determine whether or not somebody should get in or out of jail. Right, right. Yeah. Um, do you see a future in our criminal legal system where um, cash bail or money bail uh, isn't, doesn't exist anymore? Um, is that realistic? I think that it is realistic. I, I do. I see that it will be abolished completely. I, I can't. Where I'm sitting right now today, uh, I can't see that it completely being abolished completely. Um, but I will say that there are um, models in the country that we can look to to eliminate a large majority of cash bail. Like okay. we have to really look at pretrial services, right? Right. Um, getting people out of jail and, and setting them up to be successful to come to court. Right. Because at the end of the day, um, let's say um, a single mother who maybe her child, somebody at the daycare, a child at the daycare got COVID. Now she can't come to court, right. you know, but what if she doesn't have a phone to call her lawyer or to call the court and let them know? Are we going to say we're going to revoke her bail because... Right. You know, she can't be present that day. And that's something that pretrial services could help with, right? Get right. all their information, get their get their address and know where they're living and go check up on this person and say, hey, you know, you have court today or you have court tomorrow. But I think there are alternatives that we have to take the time to, to look at. You know, mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that this isn't working for us. Right. And we have to look at models where it is working. So do I see that it will be completely abolished anytime soon? No. Right. But is that a possibility if we work towards? Yes, that is a possibility. Now, help us, you know, for people who don't have not studied law, not attorneys, all this stuff, right? You're running for um, criminal court judge, um, Division 5. Um, and when many of us think about criminal court, uh, we automatically correlate that with policing. Um, how do the two, you know, if elected judge, how does that work out with those who come before you and policing and, and how we're policing our community and how that affects your role and, you know, the discretions that you have in particular cases. Okay. So for me personally, what I would say is it doesn't matter um, what type of uniform that you come into, that you're wearing when you come into my courtroom, whether you're a police officer mm -hmm. or whether you're a janitor, whether you're going to be a witness or whether you're a defendant. Everybody's going to be treated fair and equitably, mm -hmm. and that's what we have to get to. We can't say just because, you know, Joe is a... Um, you know, police officer that he has more credibility or less credibility than the janitor that's going to get ready to testify. So we have to make sure that for one, we are treating everybody the same, you know, and especially when it comes to witness testimony. So that's the first thing. As far as policing overall and in general, we really need to get to a, a community-based policing uh, system. Mm. I think for me in juvenile court, 
Um, that is what I, because I was a juvenile court assistant a DA before I, you know, decided to run for judge. And uh, the way that that we have community in juvenile court with police officers is just so beautiful. Right. Um, we literally had the sergeant who's over the SROs in the schools come talk to me and um, my other colleagues at juvenile court about what can we do as police officers to um, make things better for our youth in the school. Right. And I think that that's what we have to get to and start having more conversations and actually listen to us. Right. I told them something as simple as, you know, at the beginning of the school year, have a back to school bash where all the SROs are there and these youth are meeting them in a situation that's not tense. Right. Let's not make that first interaction with police officers be because a young person is getting arrested or a young person is in trouble. Right. Because that's gonna affect the way that they look at police going forward. Right. And just so people know, uh, SROs are school resource oh, officers. <laughs> we know, but you know, people might not know. And that's been a big topic in the community. Um, should S what are SROs' roles in schools here, public schools? Should the, you know, should I should my child even be interacting with police while in school? So that's a that's a that's another hot topic that I know. Um, you know, Chief Drake and the team and MNPS and many people are trying to like figure out the best way to to have a positive impact. Um, and be seen as a as a mm, you know an aid in the community in that uniform, um, especially with black and brown kids specifically. And so what I would say, while I was at juvenile court, um, I actually the SROs even actually invited us as ADAs to come speak to them and to tell them, you know, if you if a child is being accused of this particular crime, mm -hmm. you know that's not we're if and you arrest them, that's not appropriate for for you to arrest them. So we have a great we had a great working relationship with SROs. They will call us in the middle of the day hey, I got a kid that's being accused of this. Is this an appropriate offense for arrest? What are my other options? Right. Um, can, I tell the, can I tell the school that the DA said that I can't arrest this kid? And we're like, sure. Right. You know, that's what we're here for is to make sure that we're not arresting kids that are too young, you right. know, and, and having a traumatic effect of, with their relationship with the criminal justice system. So we had a great working relationship right. um, with SROs. And even for myself, when I was young, um, I ran track for the Police Athletic League. Um, and I was even discovered by a police officer, right, right um, while I was running track. And he invited me to um, come run summer track. And that was my inter my first interaction with the police with the police officer is um, someone who discovered me, brought me on, brought me in. You know, I was on his track team for the summer. We traveled. Right. I traveled with him during um, the summertime, and it was a beautiful thing. You know, right. it, it wasn't until I got older and I was like, wow, like that is not the norm. You know, right? Because um, right. I had a good relationship with a police officer when I was coming up. Right. Um. And so, while we're talking, I'm noticing uh, that we we're using different terminologies, okay. right? And there's three terminologies that I hear, and I want to know if you think this is fair, right? Criminal justice system, criminal legal system, because some people believe there's no justice in our criminal justice system, and then criminal punishment system, right? That last one, criminal punishment system, is that fair? I think that if we are going to get to a place where we don't have, where we're going to reduce crime, right? Mm -hmm. Punishment is not the answer. 
okay? Healing is the answer mm -hmm. in that way. Now, I do think there are instances where maybe we have egregious crimes where um, I had a friend say that that person need to be put on timeout, you know, right. um, just like kids, you know, you right. get into, you do something at school and we need to kind of put you on a timeout. We need to remove you from the group right. so you can sit back and think about what just occurred and then we can bring you back. But when we bring you back into the community, we have to give you the resources to be able to flourish. Right. It's not going to work if we say, I'm going to sentence this person to whatever amount of incarceration time. Um, maybe they are able to access programs in prison and maybe they're not. But mm -hmm. Either way, whether they are or they're not, and then they get out and they can't get housing. Right. Um, they can't get employment. Right. Um, they're having trouble maybe even just paying their child support. Now their license is being taken away. So I think we need to get away from thinking about it as a punishment, as a means of healing and, mm -hmm. and transformation and rehabilitation. That is really what it should say. That's what the system should be, is to rehabilitate people so that they can come back into the community right. as um, people who want to be a part of the community. How do, because um, I, I have, I've never experienced this, thank God for myself, but I have very close friends just because of where I grew up and, you know, just the area that we grew up in. I have friends that have, you know, been a part, been engaged in the penitentiary system here. And there are a lot of barriers um, to, for that rehabilitation that you're talking about housing employment you know you, you did your time but you know even being on papers or parole or being on probation it's a lot of barriers to really like get settled whether it's i have to go to the halfway house for six months and then which i have to pay for <laughs> and then i have to find like just normal housing in a city that it's ridiculous you know for trying to find affordable housing how how, how do we like how do we create less barriers for those folks that are absurd their time and they're trying to be better new human beings and just kind of readjust to you know life outside of the penitentiary or jail well for one um upon their release we need to make sure that they have id mm -hmm. and i know to me and you that's something that's just so simple but um i know someone who especially during the pandemic it took them I don't know, six months to even get a social security card to be able to get a license. So you expecting this person to work and they don't have an ID or a social security card. Mm -hmm. But I think that in reimagining what criminal justice looks like, that that's going to that's gonna be a process. You know, what we're right. talking about today, that's not something that's going to happen overnight. Right. And I'd be maybe one of, I don't know how many people who even is envisioning criminal justice in this way. Right. So it's going to take some time, but community, we mm -hmm. have to come together as a means of fixing the criminal justice system, it's not just gonna take lawyers and judges. That's right. just period, point blank. It's gonna take the education system, right. the healthcare system, other systems that have led this person to end up in the criminal justice system. Right. Um, my former supervisor, um, she always says that like we're the caboose. The criminal justice system is at the end. Right. We are what has had what everything that has led up to now. You know, lack of education, lack of um, housing insecurity, right. um, lack of food. Those things have led up to this person being in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So that's decades of you know, um, in, in poverty. We can't change that. Right. And you can't even change that with a sentence. You can't say, I'm going to sentence this person to whatever, whether it be one year, probation, 10 years. That's not right. going to help them. We right. have to focus on healing. because, And it's something that we say all the time, hurt people hurt people, right? right. It's so true. Right. You know, 
I'm a victim, so why do I care if I victimize somebody else? You know, right. um, I grew up in a neighborhood. My lights were, were off. I'm going to go steal this car so I can, you know, get money or, you know, whatever the case may be. Right. So we have to focus on, on healing. And I think if we have community partners that are willing to come in and focus on that, um, that we can see criminal justice in a different way. Um, and along those lines, I would say like restorative justice. I was just want to ask you about that. What do you? What are we talking about restorative justice now? What does yes. that? What does that look like? So I can describe what um, so far restorative justice looks like as far as my experience in juvenile court. Okay. So the focus of rest, of restorative justice. Is, so for one, I'll say this. Um, say we have a victim, and the victim comes into the system, mm -hmm. and the victim at the most might be able to do what a victim impact statement, right? That's right. it. Um, and then let's just even say um, what people would see as the success that the, the, the defendant of the victim pleads guilty and that mm -hmm. gets to do. That's not healing, right. you know? So restorative justice focuses more on actually healing the victim and allowing the um, person that's been accused of committing the crime to uh, develop empathy mm -hmm. for the victim and actually bring them together mm -hmm. when the time is right to be able to have a conversation about how this affected the victim and then maybe the victim even asking questions and understanding why the person who was accused was even in this situation. Right. Now the caveat to um, restorative justice is that this individual over here who's been accused of a crime is going to have to take accountability and admit that this happened or that they did this or that they caused harm. Um, and the way that it happens in um, juvenile court is all those communications with the restorative justice program, they're confidential. So right. we don't have anything to do with that. And usually if the person is successful with restorative justice and they, you know, haven't picked up any new charges or got in any more trouble, then we consider, you know, dismissing their case because right. you participated in this. And that to me provides more healing than sending somebody off to jail. The family's going home. They still have to put the pieces together. Nobody received therapy. Nobody knows why this happened. Right. Um, and there's still harm that's there that hasn't been addressed. Accountability. Let's talk about that a little okay. bit. We see, we have seen a lot of times that a community member can commit a crime, you know, could kill somebody accidentally didn't maybe intend to he or she is going to be held accountable the police might kill somebody the accountability is a little different how do we in this day and age make sure accountability is equitable um, amongst law enforcement and people in the legal system and also community members so what I would say is, is that for one, you have to vote. <laughs> you have to vote and you have to um, vote for people who understand the dynamics, understand that systemic racism still exists. Mm -hmm. um, that is the starting point. Um, as far as judges, like I said, in my courtroom, regardless of whether you are a police officer or a janitor or a you know housekeeper, everybody's going to be treated equally. You're going to come in there on a fair footing, and regardless of whether you're a police officer testifying as a witness you know, or a defendant, or you're a janitor testifying as a witness or, or a defendant, mm -hmm. everybody has to be treated equally and on level footing. Now, what I will say is before we even get to... Um, 
whether a police officer has been charged with a crime that they committed or um, whether they have, and even if they aren't charged in an instance where they, you know, another person was killed, we have mm -hmm. to talk about um, cultural competency. We have to talk about um, sensitivity training. Right. I, I, quite honestly, let's just be honest, you know, I, it took me about a year and a half, maybe two, as an ADA to not be fearful when a police officer gets behind my car. Mm. And just think, I, I've been a defense attorney. I have, I live in Nashville. I've talked to many police officers as a, as a defense attorney. But right. as an ADA, it took me still a year and a half, almost two, to, for me not to get butterflies. Right. And I'm an ADA, you right. know? And I actually told this to a police officer. And we had an honest conversation about why I felt that way, you know, about um, why I'm not likely to probably be pulled over. I'm a mom, I'm in a, you know, a Honda, you know, right. so, but we had an honest conversation about, you know, the, him rethinking the way he thinks about when he does pull people over. Cause you right. see, my son could be, you know, 10 years from now driving a, a Lexus. Right. That's my car. And right. because he's a young man in a Lexus, is that going to change your perspective of whether you, so I think that at the end of the day, we have to be willing to sit down with each other and have honest and raw mm -hmm. conversations. Right. Even if it's a matter of everybody uh, putting their phones up, you know, right. so nobody can record and having those raw conversations and being respectful of other people's um, you know, opinions. It's right. okay. We're all different. We all have different life experiences. Right. So that's to be expected. But I think at a minimum, we have to have conversations. Right. We don't get to know each other enough. Right. You know? So I think at a minimum, that's something that we really have to start doing. And that's why I think that at juvenile court, we have such a good relationship with police officers. And also, um, you know, we stand our ground. We ask the police to investigate and do their job. And mm -hmm. then if they have questions about a case, you know, um, why didn't you proceed with that case or, right. you know, um, what was missing in that case? And I appreciate when officers say, when I say, you know, that's, that might not be a good search warrant that you have there. Let's figure out a way that this could have been better, you right. know, how this could be constitutionally right. And I think we have to have those conversations and not be afraid. Right. Everybody just wants, um, justice is an interesting one, but everybody just wants things, everything to be fair and equitable for everyone. What does justice mean to you? So I think um, the traditional sense of justice is going to be, um, let's be fair. Let's be just, right. you know. Um, and more so, what does justice look like? Right, okay. <laughs> well, so what does right. justice look like to you? So, and so um, traditionally people say justice as, you know, you get what you deserve, right? Every action has a reaction. But I see justice as being more equitable. Um, in a way that how are we providing tools for somebody in this moment mm -hmm. so that they can won't do this create the same action again right right and in my opinion um, you know just because and even as an ADA just because we have we could have um, two young people um, same age um, maybe even grew up in the same household right. um, and depending on their life circumstances and depending on um, you know, their criminal history and depending on other factors that have affected them, mm -hmm. they may not necessarily need to have the same disposition, right. even if they had committed the same crime. We have to look at other factors that are surrounding why they're here to determine what is appropriate. You mm -hmm. know, we can't do blanket, and, and I'm not saying that people do blanket sentencing, but I think we have to dig 
deeper into and within the bounds of the law, of course. Right. But there are alternatives. Right. Incarceration and probation is not, are not the only two alternatives. Right. And we have to start thinking outside of the box. So justice looks like for me, when someone comes into my courtroom, I I want to, for one, have a trauma-informed courtroom, you know, because a lot of times um, people that end up in the criminal justice system, they are not here because they're necessarily bad people, right. you know. And, and some people, you know, we need to give them to to, the tools to, to have empathy or sympathy, or we need to give them to, to the tools to be able to make money in a, you know, legal way. Right. Um, so there are other circumstances that surround us, not just a person on paper with their criminal history, and that's how we make a decision. No, we need to dig deeper into what is actually going to prevent this person from coming back. That's justice. Right. Because we don't want any more victims. Right. That's the only way we can keep the community safe, right? right? I think people tend to forget about that. You know, it's like, oh, this person's going to be incarcerated for this amount of time. But guess what? 90% of these people are going to come right back into our community. Right. And what are we doing to prevent from having more victims mm -hmm. if we're not allowing that person to heal and giving them the resources to heal? Right. And I also think we should teach conflict resolution in schools <laughs> that's one way one huge thing you um you mentioned something a big word that i want to dig into a little deeper but i want us just to hold that when you talk about systemic uh racism um white supremacy all that good stuff right because uh, i think that's really relevant in the criminal legal system but before we get to that point um you're a black woman right um working in the criminal legal system how have you navigated that space understanding the harm that has been done to black folks specifically um since the beginning of the time in these in the, in the united states right um and then trying to figure out ways to 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 build power in that same system and prevent harm um to black folks that that that, that is structural harm as well um that still continues to this day so for one um as an assistant district attorney i um, tried to come up with programs especially for the youth that i could think of that would be um, beneficial to them mm -hmm. and i actually took time to um, bring a group of youth together um, sit down with them just like this sit at a table with them and ask them like what do y'all need mm -hmm. and this group of youth that I talked to, you know, they are, um, I would say probably doing good, pretty academically, doing good academically. So I wanted to know about them and their peers. Mm -hmm. You know, what what is going on? What do you all need? And something as simple as nobody ever listens to us mm -hmm. was one thing that they told me. Right. So as far as um, my role as an ADA, I have, I have my hands in every single criminal justice reform thing that we have going on at the office, I want my hands in it, right. you know, because I want to provide my perspective because right. I have a unique perspective, like you said, as a black woman right. growing up in Nashville, a mother of a child, you know, I have right. a unique perspective and I want to give that perspective. I always like to add, I always like to listen to people's ideas and then poke the holes in, you know, mm -hmm. especially as it relates to people who are indigent and we're, if we're talking about money, when we're talking about transportation, I like to think of the barriers, right? right. So that if we are going to do a program that it's going to be beneficial official to someone who may not have transportation and may not have money. Um, so everywhere that I go, I try to educate, educate, educate. That is that is the only way that um, 
we can combat this. We have to educate and we have to vote. We have to be right. involved. Um, right. I think this year I have seen way more civic engagement as far as, you know, the judicial elections. And it's really exciting right. um, because people don't know. You know, um, it's scary to think that um, now people are recognizing that we actually, some people don't even know we elect judges. Right. And some people don't even know that no matter where you live in Davidson County that you can vote for every single judge. That's right. kind of scary to think about. What's even more scary? You might know this since you're running. Uh, and I just found this out that only like 25,000 people voted for the whole judicial elections like eight years ago. 10%. I, live, I think it's Over, like, and I think I think we might have been at 400,000, 500,000 as a population. Only 25,000. So like <laughs> a very small a Very small percentage. snippet. Yeah. Uh, and then you think about all of the people that come before these different judges and whose mm -hmm. life is going to be affected right. and how many people are not um, engaging. But we have to start doing things like this. Yeah. You know, um, sure. we have to start figuring out um, what does this person believe? I, I would say this. I think one reason why you probably got a lot of calls from me is because um, I'm from this community. Right. You know, people know me from middle school, from high school. Um, they know what I've always stood for. You right. know, at UN Park, I was the president of the class. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always been in this kind of a role. But people know me. You know, right. they know my personality. They know what I stand for. Right. Aside from me even being a, a, an attorney, before that even happened. Right. You know, aside from me running for judge. Right. Um, and that's one thing when I... Um, did go to the district attorney's office because never in a million years did I ever, ever, ever think that I would be a, a district attorney. Like, right. I just was like, that would never happen. Right. But um, once I began to realize the impact that I could have, you know, I had an angst about, um, are people in the community going to see me as a traitor? Are mm -hmm. they going to think that, um, you know, I'm part of the system? But I, I and, and even in some of the trials that I have had when I was at, at juvenile court, you know, I've been called out of my name by mm. somebody who looks like me, right, another have, black woman, we, yeah, you we know. Hard, we hard um, on each other. Yeah, so, you know, and I was just thinking to myself, at the end of the day, I'm doing this for the greater good. I want right. to see your son live past the age of 18 right. and even further beyond that. So you can be right. mad at me right now, but it, but you'll thank me later, you know. What are, what are some of those other barriers may look like just based off not just your blackness but your gender in a male dominated world and also uh profession oh okay i would say this as a <laughs> as a defense attorney um i would say that i had several experiences where um you know people um was will say uh you know call me baby or hey mm. this or hey that so that's one thing you know mm. um i had our situations where I, I even got into a, well, I didn't get into an argument with one, of, with one of my clients, but I was really trying to be be there for him in that moment, and I had to withdraw because he didn't think a woman could represent him, and that was a black man, you wow. know? And so, to me, I feel like those kinds of things, I, I really even fought to continue to represent him because I'm like, I know I'm going to give you good representation if you could right. just listen to me in this moment, you right. know? Um, and I don't, and we, he wasn't able to get past the fact that I was a woman. And when I did um, do criminal defense work, a lot of, a large portion of my um, clientele were domestic violence um, defendants, you know. Mm -hmm. So that is a, an interesting dynamic in and of itself. And DV is just a complex dynamic in general. Right. Um, but what I would just try to show to my, because I would go in as somebody's appointed attorney, and it'd be like, oh, you know, they'll be relieved, like, 
right. somebody that looks like me. Like, let's let's right. see what this how this is gonna turn out. And you know, right. sometimes they'll say you're an appointed attorney, you're appointed by a judge. I I don't know if I can trust you. Right. So for me, I would build relationships with my clients. Mm. Uh, one of the first clients I remember I had, he was 18 years old. And um, I mean, even after I didn't represent him anymore, he would call my phone. He would like, Miss Bab, you told me to call you when I got angry. So right. I'm just calling you right now to calm down. And I would sit and talk to him. It could be six o'clock, seven o'clock, right. 10. What's going on with you? Because I don't want you to make a mistake that's going to land right. you back in jail and ruin your life. Right. So it has been, um, it is difficult navigating. But at the end of the day, we have to do what we have to do. You know, what else am I here for if I'm not willing to take those licks on the chin and keep it pushing? You know, so. So I'm a, um, sorry to Courtney. I didn't put this on the list, but I have to ask you. You're coming from the DA's office now. DA Glenn Funk. When you talked about that trader type of mentality that we can have of our own people, right? With the Daniel Hambrick, rest in peace, Daniel Hambrick situation, and the officer Andrew Delkey. Delkey. I always mess up his name. Delkey. I think it's Delkey. Um, a lot of people from the black community specifically were very upset about how um, DA Glenn Funk handled that situation backdoor. Um, what was your thoughts on that situation, if you can give them, um, and how that was handled? Um, and maybe where there's some alternatives as us that don't understand maybe the criminal legal system as well as you do or Glenn Funk and others, uh, that could something else could have been done? Or was that really the kind of the best situation and results that you know Daniel uh, Hamrick's family could have received? So, um, like you said, first of all, I want to just send my condolences to the, you know, Hamburg family because I think in all of this, we focus so much on what the outcome was as far as the officer that people forget that there was an actual victim, you right. know, and there's an actual family that's suffering. So I definitely want to, you know, send my condolences to them. Um, as far as, and, and actually, um, on that particular day, I was in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And um, it was emotionally charged. It was um, very sad. It's just a sad situation in general. Right. Um, and I, you know, um, even, you know, shed a tear myself. Cause it was, it was just, it was just difficult, you know? Um, so for me, I think that there are um, alternatives. And, and what I will say is that one, you know, judges, we do, we, I'm saying it like I already am yeah, one, right? Into existence. <laughs> speaking into existence. <laughs> judges do have, you know, judicial discretion. And while I was not a party to that case and I don't know all the facts and circumstances, and that is one thing that, um, the community, isn't there in the notes and bolts of things, you know, um, whether it's a, a plea bargain or whether it's just knowing the facts of the case. And so that's kind of the same thing with juvenile court because it's confidential and people don't really understand. And it's hard to explain because you can't. So what I'll say about that is that um, that's where I just go back to treating everybody the same no matter what, um, you know, uniform that they have on, mm -hmm. you know, and using my judicial discretion when I believe, whether I believe a plea bargain is appropriate or not. But as far as um, commenting specifically on a case, uh, the judicial candidates don't allow me to do that, but I do think that there are alternatives that we could do in those types of situations. Um, when it first happened, I don't know if that would have, and in general, because of the way the, the situation and how charged that situation is, I don't know if it would have been appropriate for um, 
you know, restorative justice to work in that kind of way. But what I do know is that Miss Hambrick is probably not fulfilled, you know, right. and it could not, she lost her son at right. the end of the day, you know, and even still, like I mentioned earlier, whether he w got three years or 303 years, you know, is she still made whole Can't from that Daniel situation? Back. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think that's where we have to start thinking of alternatives mm -hmm. to just incarceration because right. it's not enough. You know, she's not right. whole in this moment, right. you know, um, even though she was able to speak how she feels, she still lost her son, right. you know? So I think that there are, there is some room for alternatives. And, and for me personally, um, I do recognize and give respect to defense attorneys and DAs when they, and we expect respect actually right. when we come up with a plea bargain, right? But at the same time, it's, just to be aware that judges do have that judicial discretion to be able to rejectably, if that's what they choose to do or not. And also, I think another option is bench trials. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like we don't have enough bench trials in Nashville, and that's just basically where a judge decides what's going to happen. There's no jury involved. It's just the facts of the case, the law. And I think that's part of the part of the people don't have bench trials because you just you don't know our judges i want somebody to be able to say man right. you know what this is a legal issue these are the facts of the case i'm gonna have a bench trial in front I, of judge I feel, I feel comfortable on right that's that. what kind of where i want to get to mm -hmm. is other options besides just trial and plea you know right. we have to come up with other ways to be able to you know resolve cases that, right. that's healthy for everybody and healing for everybody and so i'm gonna circle back around now to the systemic issues um, that we've had historically in our criminal legal system um, if elected judge um, what are some ways and what role can judges play in combating a lot of this policy that is rooted in racism discrimination and white supremacy uh, that affect poor folks and black and brown folks so first off i would say that excuse me as a judge, um, obviously, we, you know, first and foremost, we have to follow the law. Yeah, got to be impartial. So yep. um, that is the first thing. But I think that there is an opportunity when um, there are hearings that are before the legislature for us to go and voice our experiences. Mm. That is something that is just so small, but that could be so impactful. You know, we have, um, even I watched a couple of the, um, the bond hearings when they were having talking about bond and before the legislature and that issue was up and we have a lot of uh community people that go and speak and i think i saw one or two judges that 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 were able to speak but we have to get more involved in that legislative process because we have a voice as judges we have a voice we have a voice and um we're there day to day and we understand mm -hmm. the impact that it has on everybody right. just to remain silent that's not okay right. i don't think that in my position as a judge that it starts and ends at that big bench you know in that docket it's right. not when i walk into the courtroom you know everybody stand and i'm here and then when i leave that's it that's not enough right you know if we want to make real change we have to start getting out into the community and doing some of the work and even that's something as small as speaking to the legislature right. about our experiences as judges can make a, a great change how do you plan um if elected to the criminal court judge division five how do you plan to stay tapped in and plugged in to a community here in Nashville? Um, because I, I think there's the this intimidation thing, I think the community have, you know, unintentionally or intentionally with judges, right? We see y'all, you know, black robe and, you know, and, and a lot of times we see y'all in, in the worst way, 
that's that's the propaganda that's given to most of us because we're not unless you unless unless you're doing whatever you're doing you're in front of the courtroom all the time right most of us like me that do you know try to stay out of trouble type of citizens <laughs> ain't trying to see y'all and so um so we don't and if we don't see you there we you know tend to leave you know if you're not if we're not trying to email y'all assistance something like that I mean, we just don't know right um so how can or how are you planning on um staying plugged in with the community if elected and keeping that uh same energy that you know that i see you having now and you're everywhere you're here and you're speaking you're meeting greets and all that because um, a lot of times we see that dwindle a little bit you know once people win that uh, seat or win an election um, and then they get comfortable um so what i will say about um as far as being involved in the community um, I am community, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, and I say that um, in the most authentic and genuine way. I love Nashville. I love everybody in Nashville. Um, this, uh, the community made me, you know, right. so I really don't have a choice because right. for one, Courtney Teasley is not going to let me <laughs> not stay plugged into the community. Right. I expected the community to hold me accountable for, mm -hmm. you know, uh, my decisions are not being involved. I expect to continue to conduct CLEs like I did at the district attorney's office. I mean, from the time I was a defense attorney up until now, my community work has not stopped. You know, um, I did not, just now as a candidate, I have come out and I've been, I guess I've been more in the forefront, but I've been doing stuff in the, in the, in, you know, behind right. the scenes for right. the longest because I love Nashville. I love the people from here. You know, it's, it's near and dear to my heart. It's ingrained in my soul, mm -hmm. you know, so how can I even separate myself from that? I have right. no intention on doing that. Right. I literally want to now, of course, obviously there are things that I'm not going to be able to talk about with people. I'm not going to be able to right. do that's going to be understood. Right. I mean, I have to do that as a, an ADA, but even as an ADA, you know, I went on the news and talked about just trying to educate people on how we work at juvenile court, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that as um, judges and as elected officials, we can't be afraid to 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 talk about things that that affect the community. Right. We can do that without talking about specifics about cases, right? right you right, know, for sure. Um, we can't wait, you know, eight years. But but for me, um, community is all I stand for. It's all I know. So right. it's my soul. So right. it's I don't have any. I can't part with it. So, right. so, um, I, and I mean, I'm on the board of a, um, a nonprofit from the heart international education foundation for kids. I've been doing that way before I was even an ADA. I mean, I'm the, um, criminal justice chair of the NAACP. Um, there are just so many ways that, um, I'm already involved in the community and I'm, my, my face hasn't been in the forefront because, right. you know, I'm just getting used to this, right. but, um, but ultimately, it's who I am, and it's mm -hmm. what I stand for. So I can't separate myself from that. You know, I'm not going to be complete without community. So, Khadijah, um, criminal court judge is eight-year term. What does the future of Nashville look like in eight years uh, with you at the seat with criminal court judge Division 5? So for me, I really want to just transform what criminal justice looks like in general, right? I want to have alternative ideas to what it mean, what what it means for justice and other things besides incarceration. So I want to have, you know, I want to be a national model, quite honestly. I want people to look and say, oh, wow, like, look what, you know, this judge did here and look how she made this work. and. I hope that in eight years it leads to my courtroom having a low recidivism rate because I have came up with alternatives to incarceration. Mm -hmm. I really want to build the partnerships with people in the community. Um, I want to really be able to provide um, a, a healthy 
um, stable restorative justice program that's actually working. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, um, like I said, I just want the crime rate to be down. I want there to be less victims and I want our community to be safer. And that's what I envision um, as a new Nashville in eight years. Yeah, no, um, I appreciate that. And, and people get out there, vote, do what you need to do. Um, because the issues that we've talked about and the issues if elected judge that you'd be dealing with affect us all, right? And the persons um, sitting in those seats are very important and the community need to be familiar with those. And so for everybody that told me, Khadija, Khadija, got to get on there. Look, she made it. She's here. She's done it. And so hopefully, you know, y'all appreciate the gems um, that she's dropping. Also the vulnerability that she, you know, she let us in to, you know, who Khadija is. Uh, which you don't get a lot of times from, from, from judge candidates or judges at all. And so I appreciate you for doing that. Um, and I appreciate everything that you're, you know, you want to do as a national native myself for Nashville and be rooted in the community. So thank you. Yes. Well, I appreciate you for having me. It's nothing more beautiful than me being able to come onto a show and speak about Nashville with a Nashville native. Cause you understand where I'm coming from. For sure. So that's a beautiful thing. I'm appreciative for what you're doing during this time. Um, not even just election season. I hope this can carry on even mm -hmm. past election season. So we can continue to keep our judges, mm -hmm. including myself, accountable for right. the decisions and the ways that we operate our courtrooms. People don't forget May 3rd is the election. The last day to register to vote is going to be April 4th. And then we have um, early voting from April the 13th to April the 28th. So get out and vote. If you need to figure out how to register to vote, I have forms in my car that I ride around with. And I also, um, you can DM me on social media if you need help going online. I'm here to serve any way that I can to be able to get more people out to vote so that we can make our voice heard and we can elect who is beneficial for our community. Well, Khadija, I appreciate you. We're going to have Courtney, your treasure, on here to talk about how people can support you financially, which is important for these campaigns. And so people tap into that. But uh, thank you again. And uh, we're going to have you back for sure. Okay. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. For sure. Nah, for real. Hold me. Every, I'm pretty sure the community is going to hold me. But how they was on me, I, 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 I'm pretty sure. So, but now, uh, thank you again. And until uh, next time. Awesome. Thank you for having me. All right. So now we have Courtney Teasley, Khadija's. Uh, treasurer, so she handled all the money and stuff. So, Courtney, tell us how people can donate to the campaign or support financially. Right. Well, the easiest way to donate, you can easily go to www.badforjudge.com. That is B-A-B-B-4-F-O-R-J-U-D-G-E.com or Cash App, BAB4Judge. You may also use PayPal. The email, babforjudge at gmail.com. Um, social media platforms, if you would like to DM us or anything of that nature, volunteer, all, everything can be found at babforjudge.com. Cool. Thank you. And people, y'all go ahead and, you know, support financially. People need money to run these campaigns. Yes. And so um, make it happen. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you.